This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as a February room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite developments, fly rods, and fishing accessories. Tech. Precision. Ingenuity. Legacy. Go to cdfishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Here's your host, Lauren Carnop, and this is The February Room. Welcome to The February Room. Um, Obviously, uh, again, I'm not Lauren. This is Justin, and uh, I'm sitting in this week because we have a special guest who I've had some great exploits with. Welcome, Frank Smethurst, to The February Room. Hi, Justin. It's good to hear your voice, my friend. You too, buddy. It's been a long time. The last time I saw you... You were mounted atop a magnificent sea, uh, steed riding into the sunset uh, in, in the Seven Devils of Idaho. What, do you, what have you been up to since? Oh, well, you know, a lot of different things. Uh, like you, you know, it's a, a few kids ago now. Um, but, uh, and I, I've got one. I know you've got two. And uh, I, don't, I, I don't remember quite as much uh, from the time before all of that. Gotcha. Well, I'm I'm sure you've been up to something. Uh, can you share uh, an adventure with us? Oh God, so many of the, so many of those. You know, uh, I, I can tell you uh, the cleverest mishap or misadventure. You know, um, since I last saw you, I almost died in the Yucatan. Okay. Yeah, that was a problem. We, a friend and I, uh, Joey McCumber and I, went out in an unproven boat, brand new boat, and. Turns out the gas gauge didn't work and a lot of other stuff on it didn't work. And uh, we drove from southern Mexico into Belize. So for any search parties that were out looking for us, we were unfindable. Nobody knew where we were. And we ended up spending the night in 
Chetamal Bay, which was not that big of a problem. Uh, it was a beautiful night till midnight. And uh, then the largest series of tropical Caribbean squalls, storms that I've ever experienced or known about, rolled in and completely battered us for hours and hours. And in addition to the gas gauge not working, uh, the bilge pump wasn't working. And we, Joey and I and Carlos, bailed furiously throughout the entire night to try and keep ourselves afloat as the boat in these 50 and 60 mile an hour gale winds was swept towards the reef in Belize. And it was it was horrific. And I mean, to tell you the truth, uh, my life uh, was really, I've never been so scared for my life. And it really kind of uh, changed my life. I made a whole bunch of changes after after that night. That was November 8th. And that would be 2014. Wow. How did that, how did that end? How did you guys get out of that? Well, we survived uh, by bailing the boat out and just about the time the boat was filling with water, both with waves coming over the side of the skiff and rain, torrents of rain pouring down and filling the skiff just at the time the boat was for sure sinking, um, the squall would stop and we could just bail the boat out and we had each, uh, we had uh, water bottles or Diet Coke cans cut in half in either hand and we were double hand bailing as fast as you could for you know what seemed like forever and we would just get the the water out of the bottom of the boat and get the boat pulled back over towards a key or some sort of flatter shallower area when then the next squall would come in so it was really it was this crazy up and down roller coaster that that almost killed us, you know, seven or eight times during the night. And uh, uh, we made it. We made it. We made it by sheer grit, sheer determination. And do you know, do you know how, like, if you've been in a swimming pool so long that you, your skin begins to prune? Sure. My, my hands were swollen to double their normal size. And uh, I can't even tell you the crazy fatigue and the, exhaustion i mean by the end of the night we we all almost accepted our fates i mean we had we had tried anchoring by a key and the mosquitoes and everything would come out and murder us and then another squall would come up and we it broke our anchor line uh, so i mean literally every single possible thing that could go wrong in that night really did and we were in a very very harsh deeply inhospitable place with Sharks in the water and jaguars on land, and I mean the whole, the whole thing. And you know, and I did all of this. I put myself in this place all on account of fish. And uh, so, yeah, I've, I've spent a little bit of time uh, uh, considering that. You know, I really have. Wow, man! And you guys were out there all night. Oh yeah, we didn't get rescued until 9 a.m. the next morning. Um, and we had pulled. You know, we had pulled almost back into Mexico. Uh, from Belize that night uh, car- and uh, we ended up by some keys called uh, Cayo Venado Deer Key on the fringe of you know down near where Mexico meets uh, Belize near Shkalak and Chetamal Bay yeah my life has really been pretty pretty different uh, since then 
I decided, you know, at that point I was kind of this uh, uh, rep. You know, I had a company that uh, sold fly fishing gear all over the country. We had a really big territory. Myself and my partner, Jake, Jake McKittrick, and we had a territory uh, where if you bought fly fishing stuff between New Orleans and Salt Lake City, um, all the way up to the Ozarks and back across to the top of Utah, you know, the fly shop that you bought stuff from probably got some of their stuff from us. And I decided that I really, you know, I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to travel around. I wanted to figure out more ways to be closer to my wife and daughter. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I didn't swear off fishing. Right. Um, I just suddenly realized um, all of the potential for harm that I could create by taking it too far. Sure, man. I mean, I you know that that scene you painted there is like something from that book Unbroken. That's uh, that's that's terrifying. I've uh, I've not had to to endure uh, uh, quite anything like that. But um, just, you know, from my own personal experiences working in television for so many years and the traveling and, you know, just the, the weird stuff that happens, the close calls, the run-ins with, with uh, you know, uh, whatever, a cartel in Mexico. And, and um, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, once I had kids, I was like, all right, I got to I got to get away from this and figure something more mundane. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, at the, end of the, at the end of that night, mundane was looking pretty damn good. Right. I bet. I bet, man. I, I slept literally my entire body was swollen and my hands were unrecognizable. They looked like hands from a corpse <sighs> because they're so swollen and so pruned up. And when Joey and I finally made it back to civilization, I slept for 30 hours straight, the longest sleep of my life. And it when I woke up, uh, my hand, everything was back to normal. I had shrunk. Wow. But, yeah. <laughs> In that night, while they were trying to rescue us, the entire boating and captain community in Schlag was out trying to find us, so much so that they were, they were doing gas runs to fuel the fleet out looking for us because they knew the storm was coming, and they were trying to save us. They didn't know that we were in Belize. And uh, during that night, they're making gas runs uh, – up and down uh, the highway between Schlack, where there is no gas, and Mahawal, where there is a gas station. And I guess it was just this crazy night. They saw four or five Jaguars on the road. And, you know, it was just one of those things where if a couple of variables had not gone our way, that would have been it. That would have been it. Because I'm talking about, you know, like... 50, 60 foot, uh, 50, 60 foot mile an hour winds creating, you know, 10 and 15 foot waves just outside of these flats that we're struggling to stay on. But Carlos is trying to pull the boat into the wind and hold the boat into the wind. We didn't have an anchor anymore. And, you know, we're still getting swept and we're jumping out and holding the boat. And then all of a sudden we would lose it and we we're trying to angle over onto another flat. But we were having to bail at the same time. And the waves were coming in and it was. And wow. it just never stopped. Never stopped over, you know, a solid 10 or 12 hours from midnight to 8 in the morning. Um, it was the. Yeah, it's just this unending uh, lethal chaos. Wow, man, that's hairball. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that they were looking out for you, and uh, 
and and everything uh, everything worked out, man. That's scary stuff. Uh, on a, on a lighter note, uh, I gotta yeah. I gotta tell this story on you. Um, so please do. So when we first met each other, this was what oh seven or something like that, and um, yep. and uh, you had been hired to host the Trout Unlimited show. And yep. and the premise of the show, I was newly newly hired at this production company in Missoula, and uh, and the premise of the show, uh, the big uh, reveal was this uh, you know incredible trout trailer, this airstream trailer that had uh, all this artwork on it. It was painted like a brown trout, a rainbow, a cutthroat, and a brook, and a brook. Yep, you're right. Yep, yep. Each corner, yep. Each corner, and it was it was, it was incredible. It was an amazing vehicle. It, it really it really was, and. Um, uh, you know, I, like I said, I had just been hired. And so this was kind of my first experience in the world of, of TV. And I see this thing and I was like, wow, these guys are serious. Like this is a this is a real production here. Um, and and the whole team is out there, every employee. And, and it's a big to do. It was like a parade. And and you're hooked up to the trailer and you're driving a, a brand new uh, Ford King Ranch pickup truck. No, well, the, no, we had a Tundra to start with, and then we periodically would borrow um, the black Ford pickup, oh. um, which would try and lock us out, and ultimately did. Right, right, but but initially we had. I was with the crew. I was the audio the audio guy. Um, yep. which is a dreadful position. You were great at it, though. Oh, yeah, I was one of the best. You know, that, that audio vest pretty much runs itself. That's Listen, people out there, let me tell you something about Justin Carnup. I saw Justin Carnup outfish myself and the entire TU crew floating down the Madison while running audio. <laughs> crystal thing- crystal clear audio. Yeah, crystal clear. Well, well you were you were handicapped. You were handicapped on that one with that guy that uh, would only target the dark rocks in the river. Remember? Oh, uh, how could I forget? How could I forget? But anyway, so initially, we had the we had the tundra hooked up to our airstream trailer, and they were filming yep. the opening scene with you in in the boss's brand new King Ranch, and I'll never forget this. You were you were smoking. You just lit a cigarette. And I was standing right next to the boss and uh, kind of the production manager, Ginger. And uh, and the boss, John, says, hey, he's not going to smoke in the truck, is he? And Ginger says, no, no, Frank would not smoke in your pickup truck. And and then you hop in the truck and and John says, drove away. He, he is smoking in the truck. <laughs> and you drove away. And that... Uh, yeah, that uh, that that launched the the TU on the rise, and we had some great shenanigans, man. And um, it was so much fun. Um, the the one trip that I I will never forget was the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, which you pretty much set the whole thing up for us. And and that was such a cool canyon, uh, one of the neatest places I've ever been. Yeah, still still uh, still is. I'm lucky enough where I, I find it uh, as my office periodically, even now. Get to I get to float down it a couple times a year. Oh wow, that place is spectacular! And I understand your uh, your back in show business. I uh, I actually was watching um, an episode of uh, Dos Boat the other day on YouTube, and uh, and I had heard that you'd been involved in it. That's one of the reasons why I tuned in. So tell me how uh, how that developed. Well, uh, you know Miles Nolt, who uh, was a writer for the Drake for a long time, and a friend of mine um, had gone to begin working with Stephen Ranella at Meat Eater there in Bozeman. 
and uh, he tapped me to help produce because he didn't know anybody else from Georgia, and they were going to do a Southeast leg last year. So I helped uh, you know, put together and produce and host a couple of episodes last year, and you know, it really went well. We did some really cool stuff. And if 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 you your listeners out there have a chance to check out uh, some of the episodes that we did in Georgia on the Savannah River uh, from last year, and Miles uh, was very kind, and Stephen were very kind, and on the strength of last year's shows, uh, brought me back for this year. Awesome, cool. Um, that and what's the premise of that show? It's pretty unique. Yeah, you know, it's it's great. You know, Miles had a big hand in uh, in creating the idea for Clyde, uh, sort of a, a vehicle that travels, you know, via the Drake. It travels around the country, and Miles really kind of transposed that idea and created the idea of a beat up old aluminum boat, the kind of boat that some of us, at least a little bit throughout our fishing youth. Uh, probably hopped into maybe it was an uncle's or a grandpa's or a dad's or who knows but uh, that boat travels around the country and different people hop into the boat to fish but on the day before they fish they've got uh, a full day and a budget of usually about 500 bucks to fix up the boat make it better and then you know make it a better fishing craft so it was great you know we got to really MacGyver uh, some cool things into being on the boats uh, now that I've worked on two of them. And uh, yeah, it was really fun. I love to, I, I, I'm, I've always liked mechanicing. I'm not an amazing mechanic or anything like that, but I really enjoy it. Learning how to really become a better marine uh, repair person was great. It was great. And, you know, getting to fish in my home, my, you know, my, sort of my birthplace of Georgia, uh, was wonderful, and I got to explore some very, very off the radar places down there. And you know, and this year I got to go uh, up to Minnesota and fish for the first time, which was uh, also really cool. What a what an amazing place Minnesota is! I mean, everything is a lake full of fish or a river full of fish in Minnesota. Yeah, it's all water up there. You know, we have a my my wife's family is originally from the North Woods of Wisconsin, and um, yeah, they have a cabin up there still, and I've had many opportunities to go up there and fish around there. And it's incredible. It's, it's, yeah, like you said, I mean, the rivers are kind of, some of them are reminiscent of Western rivers, which surprised me. Yeah. 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 And you know, I, I can't wait to go back there because of Corona, uh, et cetera. We were a little bit late in sort of getting out there to shoot all of this. And it was, you know, it was unavoidable, but we, we were about a month and a half, two months after the really prime, fishing out on Red Lake, which is where this this year's episode took place. So, you know, we were doing our best to catch fish. And, you know, I brought fly rods and spinning rods and all kinds of, you know, high-tech flies and stuff like that that I'd crafted. And none of it was worth a damn, uh, you know, <laughs> whereas slowly dragging an inflated night crawler behind a very quietly idling boat uh, was was what they wanted Barely, and uh, yeah. So you know that I actually learned a lot. I, it wasn't my very favorite type of fishing, uh, in terms of it's not quite as active as I like. But there also was a lot more to it than just sitting there in the boat and nodding off. You had to drop. You know, when you felt a bite, you had to really skillfully drop it back. You know, x amount of time, and you know it was amazing. You could make one small mistake on letting the line out, 
or opening the bail too late or whatever it was, and they would drop it. And I mean drop it, game over. So it was it was nice to you know cultivate a new skill, even if it's uh, even if it's one that I don't use uh, quite as often as you know fly fishing or surf casting or other stuff like that that I I tend to do more often. Sure, and you were sorry you were fishing for smallies or no, we were fishing. We actually were fishing. So Red Lake has a lot of different fish. It does have smallmouth and some and a lot of panfish, but it's really a walleye fishery. Gotcha. And in there with the walleye are this pretty wonderful uh, relative of a redfish, and that's called a freshwater drum. And in Minnesota, they're much maligned as a trash fish. They call them sheephead. And, you know, it just, it's it's a fish that I'd caught before. And, you know, you just hold one up and it's like, damn, this thing's got to be probably pretty good to eat. But everybody around here says they're terrible. So our our game plan, and I, I, I was able to host this show with Danielle Pruitt, uh, terrific. Uh, expert on cuisine, and now uh, an amazing walleye fisherman and boat driver. And she uh, and I, our task was to try and catch some of these sheephead along with, you know, the sort of the other staples of Minnesota table fare, uh, which would be crappy or crop, crappie, they say there. Do you say crappie or crappie? Crappie. Yeah, okay. Well, see, growing up in Georgia, it's crappie. But anyhow, <laughs> crappie. Crappie. Now that I live in Colorado, I guess I gotta res- I gotta commit to it being crappie. But anyway, we were to catch crappie, walleye, and freshwater drum, and assess. Hey, is this thing really horrible to eat? And you know what? You need to tune into the episode to find out for sure. But let me tell you something. Uh, five out of six Minnesotans agreed that uh, they may have very well been wrong about which fish was the king of best freshwater fish in their state well there you go you you taught them something maybe they didn't know oh they taught me tons too uh but uh, yeah it was amazing and you know daniel i did because daniel's such an amazing chef i learned a lot about uh you know culinary techniques and i i love to cook but i'm not amazing at it or anything like that and uh it was great to learn from someone who's way better at that well, I can attest to your cooking. I've eaten a lot of it. You, uh, that's right. You made that's us right. a lot of meals on on that TV show over the years, and uh, and you're pretty dang handy in the camp kitchen for sure. Well, you know that's one of the things you learn as a producer. I mean, producers really like sort of being on a on a guide trip with a crew of four or five people, and you know you're only as good as your uh, as your as your food. Everybody gets pretty surly pretty quick when. The food starts to taper off. Yep, you're you're exactly right. It's just like a guide trip. Um, yeah. And speaking of guiding, so you come from Georgia. Um, you guided trout there, probably some bass too. I'm not sure. Well, I have, I have, yeah. That's 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 what I assumed. And now you're kind of entering the realm of uh, of doing some steelhead guiding. And my guiding path kind of was the opposite of that. I kind of started out as a steelhead guide, got totally burned out on that. On that and then gravitated more towards trout. So, can you tell me a little bit about uh, about the differences between being a guide for trout and bass and steelhead and and, uh, and what kind of toll that takes on you? Well, you know, one of the things about that night that almost killed me was it really created a path back to guiding in a lot of ways. That's always been when the where the rubber hits the road for me. I love to share adventures with people, and I love to teach and I'm, you know, I'm a people person and, and, you know, the, the stuff that I've 
done via the media has always just been an extension of my guiding. And I decided that I wanted to be able to return to guiding in a little bit more significant fashion. And there were fish that I always wanted to have more than a passing knowledge of. I wanted to have a guiding knowledge of them. And how, you know, I when I had to return to Atlanta for a couple of years, I guided for stripers and trout and bass in Georgia. And I have always been such a dedicated uh, steelhead fisherman, even when, you know, it was just a road trip for a week, a year or something like that when I was repping. And I really wanted to develop a level of expertise with them, despite having fished for them for 20 or 30 years. You know, I, I had never guided for them and I was able to uh, secure uh, the ability to guide for them uh, in Alaska. And uh, wow, what a roller coaster guiding for those fish uh, is. I mean, I can understand how you must have gotten burned out on the Deschutes. I mean, steelhead make people are so desirable and make people so crazy that, you know, you oftentimes, doesn't matter how remote you are, you know, there is some sort of race to get to the perceived best spot, and whether you're using seaplanes, kayaks, <laughs> uh, rafts, uh, dories, jet boats, whatever it is, there you know there are other, there are very few steelhead destinations on the planet where there aren't very dedicated uh, others thinking the way you are. It's kind of the F one of guiding. I mean, it is next level, and you know, and steelhead don't. Uh, they're not always really super cooperative. Is that fair to say? <laughs> yeah, that's fair to say. Doesn't it? it kind of makes you envy those Atlantic salmon guides that know that they're going to show up and have a private beat of five miles to themselves right. that day, right? And you know, it, before you even get to de deal with the fish, you often uh, are dealing with you know other so many other variables, and it sure put my trout guiding in perspective, and that I really appreciate every single day where I'm guiding in Telluride for the Telluride angler and just how uh, straightforward that is by comparison. You know, it's so much more of a meritocracy. Yeah. Whereas, you know, steelhead, it's just, it's all over the map. You know, the, the beginners catch all the fish and the experts that you're, you know, have been everywhere and have caught thousands of steelhead get blanked or, you know, there's just, I, sometimes maybe fishing for me is a search for reason and uh, you have to let go of some of that when you're looking for steelhead. A friend of mine said when I returned to steelheading after a break from steelhead, you know, when I was really pursuing a lot of rooster fish for a couple of decades. And he was like, Frank, if you're going to come back to do steelhead again, you have to remember rule number one. And I was like, well, what's what's rule number one of steelheading? He's like, rule number one of steelheading is that there are no rules. Don't ever forget it. I was like, well. What kind of crazy, obscure, abstract thing are you telling me? And you know what? He's right. Yep. He's right. They're, they're guiding principles, but steelhead, are, it's an all bets are off type fish. Doesn't matter who you are, where you go, what you do. It, it really is. And, and with steelheading, you have to really enjoy uh, where you are, the scene. Yep. You have to like, you have to enjoy the casting and you have to enjoy that whole process and for me, when I do get lucky enough to catch a fish, it's when I'm not thinking about the fish. Yeah. Yeah, it helps. Yep. It helps. Yep. That's uh, that's probably my problem with permit is I haven't gotten there yet with those fish where I'm like, all right, I'm just out here having fun. 
making some casts and I'm not so well, so focused on those crazy things. So I had a big stint chasing permit for a while also. And, you know, the hardest part about permit is how far up on a pedestal they are by the time they finally, in your mind, right. by the time they finally show up uh, in front of the boat. And do you know, and, you know, I've caught them that way just by chasing permit, but it's kind of gotten to be with me where I'd rather, I usually say, hey, look, let's go look for the biggest bonefish in the area in the deepest water. And if a permit shows up, great. And by then, you know, if I'm sitting there tossing the fly at, at bonefish, you know, sooner or later, I'm going to catch a few of those. I'll be warmed up. I'm in the zone. And then all of a sudden, when a permit shows up, I don't throw complete junk at them. There you go. You know, that's I throw an insightful fly that is permit relevant. And, you know, I'm dialed when they show up. You know, the, the going out on a boat and doing it for two or three shots a day uh, you know it, it's still so exotic to me to go to those foreign locales where I I just don't want to commit quite that hard to permit although I, I find them wonderful I've caught them they're great um, but you know give me a give me the bow and a whole bunch of bonefish and maybe a sprinkling of permit and I think I'm happiest yep that's well said that's uh, that's definitely the, the frame of mind um that, uh, that I seek in pursuit of those things. And I, I haven't fished for them for a while and I've had just a really good time saltwater fishing, um, for other stuff. And when the permits show up, yeah, I make, make some casts at them. They never eat my fly and and all's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I really like, uh, fishing either a spawning shrimp all the time or, uh, you know, it's a good one as a Kung Fu crab. Um, cause bonefish eat it really well too. And, you know, just kind of keeping whatever you throw. There. A lot of guys I know on the Yucatan throw a squimp, and that catches both fish perfectly. So, you know, if you just kind of choose a fly wisely and pretend a permit's a bonefish and a bonefish is a permit, next thing you know, you catch them both, and uh, you get to catch a few more fish a day and get plenty more shots a day without, you know, standing there waiting for something you know, mediocre to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be, beating your head against the wall. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's nothing worse than waiting two hours and then throwing a just <laughs> terrible shot. At the yeah, no but, doubt. You know, and then, you know, you know, it's like, well, permit fishing in any way is pretty humbling in some of the same ways that, you know, rooster fish and steelhead are, but, you know, permit are kind of the gambler's fish. And I don't know if I want to, commit an entire week of just chasing them yeah i'm with you on that one sign me up i'll be your sidekick anytime on a trip with that in mind speaking of rooster fish so i went back and i watched running down the man again the other day and you're probably tired of talking about that movie but that movie kind of it raised the bar for fly fishing films and kind of started uh started that whole thing don't you think well you know i i haven't seen it in a while but that's that's the way I've always felt about it, and it, you know, it, it's it's a real testament to the filmmaking ability of Ben Ben Knight and Travis Rummel, who've gone on with Felt Soul Productions to make so many great films, and you know, and, and, and as longtime friends, you know, we we were able to really put something together, and it was uh, one of those things that when you when you're making productions, you're never really sure if you're going to encounter that lightning in a bottle that amazing scenario where everything that you're hoping will turn silver turns platinum 
I mean, over the top, everything's going well. So, you know, that was a, it was an amazing experience. And I, you know, whether it's that or even Eastern Rises, I really, you know, I really stand by uh, both of those works uh, with a tremendous amount of pride and also, you know, humility. I got to, I got to team up with the best guys and go to the best places and I get to do it, I get to do it more. Um, whether it's with, uh, with you guys and Jake and Nate and uh, <laughs> <Pack Horse Black laughs> yeah, and Gus the Cantankerous Mule. That was my that was my mount. The yeah. <laughs> uh, listeners, we're talking about uh, the various pack animals that we had to bring the crew in up into this wilderness in Idaho, uh, where I caught some nice bull trout. It was really cool. Um, yeah, it was very cool. But um, anyhow, the, none of the pack animals liked liked any of us. <laughs> like, a couple of them really disliked Jake, our head cameraman, and did I, Blackie didn't like you much either. No, no. And they, remember, they they put me on the mule because the the mule was the the calmest, most insistent animal. They'd never had a problem with him, and and Gus just hated my guts, and he turned around and ran as fast as he could on that um, that you know trail that was on a precipice leading down into that. Ca- I thought I was going to die for sure that day. He ran all the way back to the lodge. Or back to That's back to right. camp, back to Stouter's house, with you bouncing, with me bouncing <laughs> hanging on and for dear our, life. And for our listeners, <laughs> Justin, Justin's a pretty big, tall guy, and Gus, being a mule, not that big. So you know, it was a pretty amusing-looking, <laughs> you know, uh, apparition oh, there, geez. Uh, flying across the Idaho high mountain prairie. <laughs> you barely holding on for dear life. Oh man, that was something else. So yeah, you know, I. I I, I I love to make really good productions. It's like putting together an amazing guide trip, and you know I tend to produce most of the stuff that I do. So that really taps into my guiding instincts. And making a really good production is like a really good guide trip, and that it's this incredible story that you know you're doing everything in your power to have a hap- create a happy ending, and learn a lot and have it be enriching and, you know, usually humorous. That's, that's always been my shtick is that, you know, if you're not laughing a little bit while you're fishing, you're doing it wrong. You really are. No doubt. This is it's the best opportunity to really sort of get with people in a very real fashion and, uh, you know, really break bread and uh, laugh about uh, the undertaking at times and, you know, putting yourself in the position of being this, hyper-intelligent being trying to chase this pea-brained fish that uh, invariably uh, wins many rounds. So, Yeah, speaking of which, uh, the golden doofus, man. Anytime I need a laugh in the middle of a steelhead run when I'm struggling with my spay cast or something, I just I envision the golden doofus coming out of the woods to, to check on me. Yep, that was the yeah, – it's, it's a long story. But yeah, that's we, not – neither here nor we there. A character, we discovered a character on the on the, uh, on the shoots who uh, truly earned that title. Is there a fly called the Golden Doofus? Mm, that's got to be – you got to add that to your series. I give that to you first. Oh, really? Okay, man. Thanks. I'll Absolutely. I'll do my worst with it. Um, so y- your daughter's 11, right? Is Does she, yeah. does she have the bug – you know, she's got the river bug. She's got the water bug. Um, I, I go really gently on the whole fishing thing. She loves to net all the fish. She loves to be net girl. And, you know, when I when I finally hand her 
the rod and say, hey, do you do you feel like making a couple casts? You know, usually the fishing's pretty on. So she makes one cast, catches a fish, and she's like, God, Dad, this is so easy. I can't believe people pay you to <laughs> take them fishing. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, that, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're right, honey. You're just, I, I try and also say, hey, you know, it's actually, you're you're kind of good at this is, is why. And, you know, her middle name is Dolores, so she's named oh, after right. a river. And I, you know, I keep telling her that she, you know, reminding her that she's got these inherent and intrinsic links and she will be a water girl her entire life. So, you know, it, I don't know if uh, if it'll fully take with her, but I'm not going to be overly pushy about it. You're not sure if it's going to develop into Dolores's fish problem yet. Huh. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably better for her if it doesn't. But, uh, you know, I know that... Uh, Someday there's going to be all manner of fishing guides, you know, uh, that are like, whoa, you're, this girl can really, you know, make it happen. Right now she's, she's more, uh, she's more into netting fish and paddling her sup around. And that's been, you know, for any listeners out there, I'll tell you what, if you're trying to get your kids into fishing, I have found that stand up paddle boards are just this amazing way to get kids really, really enthused about going down to the water at all times and, and, uh, you know, having fun and fishing as an addition to that is probably a little bit easier segue when you're a parent trying to teach a kid about fishing. If they're already down at the water supping, you know, it's on. They, they, sometimes they want to take a break and make a couple casts. And that's, that's been really working for us. So stand up paddle boards, uh, are the best thing I've brought home to the family from the world of fishing yeah you're spot on man i i got one this summer we got one this summer um just kind of by happenstance and uh and we were up at a lake in august uh, rented this cabin and our boy sawyer who's six just grabbed it paddled out and was hucking his spinning rod and caught the uh the first bass of the trip after i'd been trying for like three days um really yeah yeah and uh oh he just he loves that the, the sup is exactly right there and you can take you can take it with you you know all around my sup's been to dubai and baja and yucatan and you know uh, it's nice hopping off the plane with a uh with your own boat oh yeah they're the best i uh, like i said i just got one and uh i don't know why i waited so long it's yeah they're the versatility of them is unmatched did you know that if you take uh, about a third of the air out of it, it becomes an incredibly comfortable air mattress? Oh, that's good to know. No, that's yeah. Right. yeah what a, it's like a multi-tool. Dude, I've slept. I've slept like a toddler on mine. Oh, that's a great call. Good to know, man. Yeah, yeah I can't wait to spend more time with mine this year. Um, do you got another story for me, Frank? That first one was going to be t- going to be tough to beat, but. Uh, a guide story or uh, or something that happened to you in your travels with, with media production or fishing in general, dig into the vault. Dig into the vault. You know, that's the, <laughs> there is a good, there is a good vault here. Let me yeah, see. there's uh, a vault. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can tell you about, uh, back in the day when I guided in Alaska, I was sharing, I was guiding a trip with Scott Howell really terrific steelhead guide, really tremendous reputation now on the Umpqua River in Oregon. And Scott and I were guiding these, guiding uh, this family. And uh, it was an older, we had, we had this older couple and then uh, two other people. Um, 
and I was up this braid on the upper Alagnac River, and I suddenly noticed that this the the braid was completely full, bank to bank, of sockeye salmon streaming upstream, headed to the headwaters to spawn, and there was there was no way you could get you know there was no way to uh, get a fly in the water without catching one, and I'm sitting there looking at this. Uh, this column of sockeye on the bank and it's about three or four feet wide and I'm sitting there looking at it and then all of a sudden it gets to be about five or six feet wide and then it's six or eight feet wide and then as I as I said before suddenly it's bank to bank the sockeye and then all of a sudden I see sockeye heading starting to head downstream and I was like what is going on and then it occurred to me oh no and I looked upstream and running down the braid was a good-sized grizzly bear. And I mean running, not walking, not like, oh, look, he's 200 yards away. Isn't this a great Wild Kingdom moment? No. This bear is 100 feet from us and closing at light speed. And anyhow, my client, uh, who was the the older lady, um, had not seen the bear. And I was like, oh, you know, let's call her Mildred. Um, And I was like, oh, hey, Mildred, you know, and I was trying to keep her from noticing the bear. I was like, hey, Mildred, let's uh, let's go back up this way. And I'm sitting there trying to block, you know, her vision of the bear. And she's like asking me, like, but she's like, but the fishing's so good. And look how many there are all of a sudden. <laughs> and they're flashing around. And literally, there starts to get to be this huge din, this loud splashing. Because the salmon want to go upstream, but the bear's pushing them down. And all the salmon that are coming upstream are, are thrashing. And all the salmon that are getting chased downstream are thrashing. And I mean... It's, it's beginning to be a roar in this back channel of the Alagnac. And all of a sudden, she looks over my shoulder. She sees that the bear is 50 feet or less away and is still just booking towards us. And he doesn't even see us. He is staring at the fish and chasing the fish. But he's big. But he's big. And Mildred folded up in my arms, passed out, cold, <laughs> completely cold, in the midst of the river, and I am pinned to the bottom of the river, standing there holding this poor woman uh, who is out like a light. And here comes this bear, like at light speed. And right then, like the like the first calf coming over the hill, Scott Howell, who's like nine feet tall <laughs> um, and big and scary looking. I mean, he's, he's got a shaved head, and he totes a Mossberg 200A riot barrel shotgun and some sort of giant handgun. <laughs> He's always like super strapped, literally like, like, like the Terminator. He comes over the rise <laughs> in the tundra, like score. Yeah, holding the. You know, he's got the shotgun. He's got the pistol, and he, he's like, I got this, and he, he <laughs> runs, runs between us and the bear, yelling, and we're all yelling. And Mildred, um, we start yelling, and Mildred wakes up a little bit, and then sees the bear and passes right back out. <laughs> And so I'm holding her, and it's like this giant sack of potatoes that, you know, is really unwieldy. I can't hold her up much better, and uh, but I'm pinned to the spot. You know, I'm trying to drag her towards shore, but it ain't really happening. Scott and I are both yelling and screaming, and then finally this bear notices us and kind of stops. And you can see him in his bear mind considering, hey, you know... These guys, these guys, not all, I, these guys are in my place. This is where I fish. 
what are these two idiots doing here? And what's this, whatever that guy is, that one of them is holding looks, looks delicious. Um, so anyhow, the long story short, Scott never really had to shoot even a warning shot. The bear just took look, one look at him and uh, pretty much decided to ease around where we were sitting and where we were standing. And, and the bear kind of faded off into the underbrush on the far side of the braid. But that was my biggest sort of bear scare and encounter that uh, I've ever had. And, you know, truth be told, uh, I didn't really save ourselves I didn't really save my client. It was really, it was really about Scott. Well, if there's one guy that actually might have a chance to get a bear in a hand-to-hand fight, it'd probably be Scott Howell. He'd be in the conversation. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. I woe to the bear that attacks Scott. Howell. <laughs> well, awesome, Frank. So, uh, so folks can find you on Instagram at Frank's Fish Problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, and check out, uh, DOS boat on, on YouTube and, uh, and, and where else can we track you down? Well, I've got some stuff, I've got some stuff cooking, Justin, and, uh, you know, just stay tuned. I've got a new website, uh, franksmethers.com and, uh, some other stuff, uh, cooking around and I've got, uh, some other productions with meat eater that I'm looking forward to. Uh, so definitely tune in to meat eater. There's good stuff going on there with good people and, who knows uh, what kind of content, as the kids say these days, uh, <laughs> will be created going down down the road. Well, right on, man. Well, thank you so much. It was awesome catching up with you. It's been too long. Thanks, Justin. It's great catching up with you too, buddy. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week. <laughs>